0: For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's word. All right, guys. Um, Thank you for that, Julia. Julia. Wonderfully read. All right, um, let's pray before we jump into this, dear heavenly Father. Um, God, we we thank you that we get to um, celebrate this kind of coming of the Christmas season. God, I I think it's amazing that Christmas is kind of a big deal throughout our country, even though a lot of people aren't considering the same types of uh, spiritual and faith things that we are. But I just think that the fact that there's such a noticeable change in where we live and just what we're seeing because of this Christmas is so significant. And so I pray that we would kind of like ride the coattails of that season change into just really being able to experience Uh, Just the beauty of what Christmas and what the incarnation was um, for us as believers and for the world and for the story of the world. Um, I pray that we would just be able to resonate and meditate in all of that tonight, specifically in the context of you being our everlasting Father. We thank you for everything. We pray that you would just speak clearly uh, through myself right now and that every heart would be prepared to receive the word that you have prepared to give. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so as you guys know, as we just read, our passage from today is going to be Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. And so for this four-week little mini-series that started last week when Andy preached on the Prince of Peace, we're kind of each breaking down uh, these key um, titles that Jesus was given way back in Isaiah, which is Old Testament. This is a Messianic prophecy verse. And the one we're going to focus on today is Everlasting Father. So the weird thing is, and and what I feel like I kind of have to address, that I kind of had to address personally as I was starting this uh, sermon preparation, is just that it's really weird that Jesus in this prophetical passage is being referred to as the Everlasting Father. Because as we've come to understand in like post-New Testament Christianity, we think of these terms as pretty like specific to each body of the Trinity. We've got the Father, we've got the Son, and we've got the Holy Spirit. So this idea that Jesus is being called an everlasting Father is super weird, and I think that's something that we just kind of have to look at. Um, and this is like really more of a nerdy tangent than anything else, because I don't want to dwell on this for very long. I think it's really incredible though when you kind of dig into it because a lot of this from, from how I have viewed this passage comes across as very like heavily incarnation-esque in the language that it uses. You know, the incarnation is this term that we use for, you know, God becoming man, which was Jesus Christ in his birth as it's described in the New Testament. Like this idea that this passage says, a child will be born who will be an everlasting father like something is coming into being is being born that is everlasting like those two things seem to conflict with each other and a child is being called a father like those two things seem to conflict with each other it creates this like weird sort of paradox and i think that it shows that within the trinity you have the father son holy spirit and there's Even as there's distinction in character, there's always this ebb and flow, always this perfect harmony of what they consist of. That even Jesus could be described using fatherly vocabulary, using fatherly imagery. I think that's really incredible. I I read I read a commentary that made a mention that the 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 Father and the Son, as these two parts of the Trinity, are so immersed in each other that the the that the the author of isaiah the, the prophet Isaiah couldn't describe the Messiah which would be Christ without using fatherly imagery, and I think that's really interesting, but again we're not going to dwell there for too long and then we do want to remember that Jesus used some pretty like parental terms when he was speaking to He told the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, which, you know, implies like kind of a a parental relationship that he had with his disciples. And um, he, when he was looking out over Jerusalem, he said, oh, I wish that I could gather you like a mother hen gathers its chicks, which is again, very kind of Paternal, or maternal, I guess, but very, very parental in terms of language. But again, that's just my like kind of nerdy intro as to like how I think that language and how I think the the you know ebbing and flowing and just the the combination of the Trinity terms is so interesting. But I don't want to spend time there anymore. I want to move on, and I'll move into my main points, which are this: Jesus is being referred to. As, the ever, as an everlasting father. Like those two terms, like he's, he's a father, but he's an everlasting father. Someone who does what he does into eternity without any limitations in time. And he's a father. He could have said uh, an everlasting prophet, an everlasting figurehead, an everlasting preacher. But no, no, the author, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, said he's an everlasting father. And so I had, to, I had to really dive into like, what makes, what does it mean to be a good father? What does a good father do? And how does Jesus fill that role in the way he's described? And I kind of broke it down to three points. The first is this. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows us. See, why was Jesus so capable of talking to all of these different people who came to talk to him when he was alive, from his disciples to the Pharisees to uh, rich people and poor people and people from all different classes? And, And like, how was he able to talk to them? He talked to them that way because he knew them. He didn't just know them like, oh, that's, that's Shlomo, that's Moshe, you know. He didn't just know them by their name or where they came from. There's something so deep and intimate about how Jesus knows each and every one of us. It's like, as we enter like, you know, Christmas season, like, take a brief moment to think of like, the most meaningful gift You've ever received for Christmas or or otherwise. Just like think real briefly of like what that, what the best gift was you ever got. I would imagine for most of us, it's probably not a gift card and it's probably not a handful of cash. It was probably something that made you, within the context of the relationship that you had with that person, feel very known. A unicorn notebook. I love unicorns and I love writing things. I feel so seen. You know, like that's, that's the kind of thing that we see and, and, that, and that's the kind of depth when we understand like that Jesus knows us like a father. Like I, I think when, when I think about this like as a knee-jerk reaction, I think of Jesus as like this like floating head like following me around. He, like, he knows me because he's following me. He knows me because behind closed doors, he sees every nook and cranny of my mind and my intentions. And it comes across as really intimidating. Like, I don't want Jesus to know me like that. But even when Jesus describes it, and when he's talking about the father, he says, he knows every hair on your head such, a, such an interesting way for Jesus to say how God knows us, right? Like, I, I imagine there's, like, like, like somewhere up in heaven, there's probably this hall full of, like, monitors that just have, like, this running count that's just constantly increasing and decreasing of, like, the hairs on your head, you know? Some people recede, numbers going down, get hair plugs, goes back up, you know? It's just so fascinating that that's the depiction that we get of how deeply God knows us. And, and, and again, I want to say, we, we, at least I myself, have this tendency to think of Jesus knowing me like this Santa Claus figure. I don't know why we people portray Santa Claus as such a jolly guy. That song just, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you'll be bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. What kind of Coercive like authority figure is Santa Claus. And what fear are we striking into these poor children by telling them this? When I see Jesus, I don't see Jesus as this guy who's just got this running tally of all of my issues and my problems, I see someone who knows me deeply, who doesn't just know my mistakes, but he knows what drives me to them. He knows my motivations, He knows my heart, He knows my story. He knows my, my difficulties my ambitions, my passions, my loves, my hates. He knows my story so deeply and so well because while I was living through every success and blunder, he was there alongside of me writing it for me. That's how deeply Jesus knows us. That's, that's how fatherly Jesus's knowledge of us is. The second point is, what does a good father do? This is not meant to be a Father's Day sermon, but fathers, do with this as you will. Um, What does a good father do? Second point, Jesus makes us secure. He secures us. He makes us feel safe. I... uh, When I was growing up, my older sister Jenna used to um, have night terrors. And if you've never uh, experienced a night terror before, uh, probably just count yourself lucky. It's basically a nightmare where you wake up and you can't separate reality from the dream. And so you respond to whatever nightmare you're in as if you're still in it, but now you're awake and you have motor control over your, your body. And so my sister, when she would have these night terrors, she would wake up and she would sit up out of her bed. She would scream and then she would run like every time. And this was a few years. Thank the Lord. She eventually did grow out of this because it wasn't a fun time for my family, but she would, she would get up. She would scream as loud as she possibly could. Cause she felt like something was trying to harm her. And she ran, she ran as far and as hard as she could. And my dad would just, just lumber through the house like this big old running back just kicking through doors and he would snatch her. He would grab her and she would still freak out because she'd think that whatever was chasing her got her and he would hold her and he would, he would hold her until she knew that she was safe and he'd just keep holding on to her. And when I think of the type of way that Jesus secures us, like I think of it like that, like we, we have been so immersed in these these fears that are oftentimes without base and foundation. And we're we're, we're endangering ourselves as we run and Jesus is catching us and he's holding us and he's making us feel safe again. The interesting thing is, that's not to say that there is no danger. And that's not to say that Jesus expressed that there was no danger. Jesus' expression throughout his ministry was, you guys got to understand the sin that you're carrying, the sin that your father has told you about, you got to stop trying to wash it away by your own means. Put it on me. I can take care of that for you. But if you choose to do your own thing, you are putting yourself in more danger than you know. And so there is this, this awareness of danger and this awareness of sin and just how devastating it can be. But there's also this invitation that he will take away what is killing us, and he will save us, and he will make us feel secure. And so we have this promise, once we have trusted Jesus, once we have told him that we we believe and we have faith, that he will wash us clean, that he will make us his forever, that we have these promises that say, we're good. Not good morally, but we're good like, we're fine. We're secure. We're safe. All all throughout the New Testament, you see these promises of no longer slaves to sin, no longer shackled to these things of evil. Once dead, now alive. No, no, No more condemnation. He has saved us and he has secured us and there is not a single son or daughter of God that will slip through his fingers in that regard. We are secure from, from, any, from, from, from divine punishment for our sins, for the things that we have done wrong, for our mistakes, for our vices, for our problems. When we look at the other promises that, that Jesus gives us, we, we can see that we're secure from hopelessness. We're secure from despair. We're secure from this feeling that the sufferings that we feel, because we are not safe from suffering, not to say that suffering can, can, can damage us because we do have a perfect king watching out for us, but that king has also said, yeah, suffering is going to happen. Suffering is going to happen, and we know this. But we also have this promise that says that your suffering will be for a moment and then never again. We have this promise that The suffering that we experience, just like Jesus' suffering, Jesus suffered more than any human being. He didn't deserve a lick of it. He got hanged up on a cross and crucified, but for what a beautiful purpose, to save his friends, to save those he loved. Our suffering won't be worthless. Our suffering won't be meaningless. I think of Psalm 91. It's such a cool psalm. I just absolutely love this psalm. Just a few verses from it, talking about the security that we can find in Christ, in in, in God. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. A, A bad interpretation of this verse would be to say, nothing bad will ever happen to me. That would not be a great interpretation of this verse. But what it is to say is that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of everything the world has to offer us in terms of just crummy, crummy stuff, we are always secure. What's the last one? What's the last point? What does a good father do? Jesus draws near to us. He draws near to us. In the spirit of Christmas, man, I'm telling you, in the spirit of Christmas, I had to reference, I'll be home for Christmas. Probably not the movie. I don't think I ever saw it. Even I think it has Jonathan Taylor Thomas in it. I don't know if that's true. But the song, it's kind of a sad song. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. Maybe I won't be there. You get this image of this of this of this father who's who's stuck at work, or maybe he uh, maybe there's you know a lot of snow on the roads. He can't make it back home, or maybe he's on a business trip to Boston and his family's in San Francisco. You know all these all these like hallmark reasons for distance, and there's this like longing, like I want to be home with my family. I think one thing we need to see about Jesus is that. He has promised to be home for Christmas. I hate that I said that. All right, man, this is, this is not the kind of pastor I'm trying to be. Jesus has promised to return to us, though. He has promised to close the distance between us because one thing that, that we, we need, 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 need to understand, to get right about the grand story of the Bible, of the good news that we live in, is that when you die and go to heaven is not the end of the story. It's not. It's not the end of the story. Because Jesus promised, even, even in Romans, speaking of all creation groaning, knowing that there is something off that needs to be fixed that needs to be repaired Jesus has promised not just to deliver us to heaven. Heaven's real. It's not that soul sleep stuff. Heaven is real and it's beautiful. But the great conclusion to the story of the universe that we are living in right now is that Jesus would return and become the king of everything that had been lost. And he would make everything right and he would make all things new. And that's when the new heaven, the new earth. That's where his children would dwell forever. That's when sin and evil and Satan are finally made made good. That is the final conclusion of the story. And that is a promise that Jesus has given us. Just like he said when he spoke to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not gonna leave you. I'll come back. Just wait for me. As we already said, he knows everything about all of us. He knows everything. And when he returns, he will make everything right completely. And that is the final promise that we have to look forward to. That is the final promise that we as Christians have to look forward to. He knows That you struggle with sin, with doing the wrong thing. He knows you won't be there forever, though. You won't be there forever, though. Because he'll return and he'll make things good. He knows your, your pains, like your physical pains, your back, your knees, your disease. He knows it. He sees it. He will not leave you there forever. He knows Everything about us, and He will return, and He will make things good. He will make things right. He has promised to. Just, just you know, like the guy in the "I'll be home for Christmas" story, Jesus is, Jesus is like, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. He's taken the last. He's taken that red eye flight. He's telling his boss he can kick rocks. He's snowboarding down those snow plows. He's getting back home before the eggnog is opened. He is coming back, and he is promising to make right all of the things that plague us today. All of the sufferings we experience are only supposed to be for a moment, whether we die and they end then or if he comes back first. But we pray that he would come back. The last thing they say in the New Testament, the last thing they say at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. That should be our prayer. We will experience a day when we, we will experience a day when we look back on today and think, man, I remember when Jesus wasn't as close to me as he is right now. We will look back, and think of how Jesus was once had, having distance from us, but came and now that distance is closed. That's not to say we don't experience fellowship with God now, but it is to say that what we have today is a foretaste of something that we will see more beautifully. This, is, this right here is a little pinky in the sauce, and soon comes the full entree. man. So uh, as, as we kind of conclude the, the, the sermon portion and we transition into the confession portion, I, I'm, going to, I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm, we're gonna give a couple minutes for you guys to, to just kind of be in silence for a bit. The question I wanna ask is when I find myself struggling with sin, when I find myself returning back into things that promise me comfort but only tear me down, it's usually not because I think that I've got God figured out. Usually, I've, I've kind of molded God, and again, into this twisted Santa Claus figure who's just waiting to, to judge me and just throw lumps of coals down my chimney, like just nothing but judgment and criticism. So I'm inviting all of us to see the goodness of God God. And that through that, we would respond to him in an honest way, seeing him for who he is, that in the light of that, we can see ourselves and not do so in judgments and not do so in ways that does not consider the weight of sin, but an honest confession. And so I want to ask you guys, what are are ways that you're struggling to see God in these kind of Fatherly roles to see Jesus, the prophesied Messiah in these ways. In what ways do we challenge Jesus knowing us or securing us? Or even just the promise that we are not going to be where we are stuck today forever? What are what are those ways and how, how can we how can we bring those before God? Um, I'm gonna pray. I'll give you guys a couple minutes to pray and then we'll and then we'll come back. Father God, um, yeah, I want to thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, just, just for everything that you are. Everything that you are is, a, is just wonderful, and it's, I, I think we should all as Christians see it as a beautiful, wonderful challenge to just explore the, the goodness that you possess, because there's always a new leaf to turn over. There's always something more to see, um, and who you are, God. So I pray that we would explore that more. God, we have not seen you clearly. We have misrepresented and mischaracterized you. We have, we have called you passive over sin, or, or also and we have called you like a tyrant with a big ax he's waiting to swing at the heads of his children. And we, we reject both of those. We know that you are... A God who is good, who is kind, who is patient, who is slow to anger. We know that you are a God, that you are a Christ who died to show the weight of sin, but also resurrected to show that we can be free from it. So when we confess to you, God, may we see the weight of sin, but also see the beauty of liberation. Um, Help guide all of us as we pray before you right now, Um, just to tap into that, maybe that, Open that closet that we've been trying not to visit for a while. Maybe it's time to open it and bring it before you, God. Help us to just pray honestly and earnestly before you, Lord.